You're listening to Everyday Evidence, presented by the American Occupational Therapy Association, helping the occupational therapy practitioner apply evidence to practice. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. Today, we are joined by Dr. John Margettis and Dr. Jamie Wilcox. John is an occupational therapist at Keck Medical Center of USC, specializing in neurologic and critical care rehabilitation with clinical interests in acquired brain injury, stroke, neuroimaging, and neurocognitive dysfunction. Jamie is an occupational therapist also at Keck and specializes in pulmonary organ transplant and critical care rehabilitation. Her academic and clinical interests include occupational therapy interventions for patients living with acute and chronic lung diseases, post-intensive care syndrome, and early rehabilitation mobilization for patients with severe critical illness. Thank you both for being on the show today. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. Right on. So since March of 2020, you two have been on the front line of COVID of the COVID-19 pandemic, caring for patients during and after hospitalization for acute COVID-19 related illness. During this last year, what changes have you experienced in your day-to-day work? You know, one of the biggest changes we've seen uh, in the last year or so aside from just all of the PPE that we're wearing all the time uh, for, you know, eight to 10 hours a day uh, is a lot of the patients we're seeing are just sicker. We're both experts in critical care rehabilitation. We've worked uh, at here at USC in the ICUs for a number of years. And the patients we're seeing in the COVID units just have more sort of comorbidities and more systems being involved in terms of their critical illness. Uh, oftentimes, uh, as a, uh, you know, I work primarily in neurocritical care, primarily the neurologic system is impaired and the rest are spared or, or, or only minimally impaired. Uh, in COVID patients, it's every single system uh, that's impaired, that every single body system needs some sort of intervention, whether it's a medical intervention or a therapy intervention. Overall, the, the camaraderie in the COVID unit is probably one of the other big changes is, you know, everyone in healthcare works in a silo. Uh, as interdisciplinary, interprofessional as we try to be, everyone still winds up being sort of in a silo. But in the COVID unit, I noticed that that changed uh, really fast early on. Uh, everyone had each other's back. And because we're all working towards a common goal against a common uh, enemy, if you will, being enemy being COVID. <laughs> um, but uh, but everyone, everyone, it was very much like you read, uh, you know, soldiers working together in a, in a, in a war zone. Everyone's uh, on the same team and... Uh, willing to help each other out. Absolutely. It, it, I saw a little bit uh, of how things have changed due to COVID. In one of my field works, I was at an acute care hospital in Illinois. And like you mentioned, a lot of PPP changes and, uh, and also that sense of, of camaraderie and everybody having each other's back. Um, how, how would you say your approach to, to treatment has changed during all of this? It's definitely challenged our abilities um, and offered us new ways in how we communicate with other professionals across disciplines within our own department and across rehab disciplines. I think it's really forced us to align the goals of functional interventions and medical interventions, which in critical care is has been necessary for a long time. But even patients who are you know just coming into the hospital with acute COVID infections. Uh, who at one point were are coming in from home and should be relatively stable, not jumping straight into the critical care units. Uh, it's still re- because of the trajectory of the clinical course and 
the potential for rapid decompensation. It's really forcing us to work together and consider, you know, what are the physician's goals? What are the respiratory therapist goals? What are the nursing goals for the day? And making sure that the OT or PT or whatever the rehab goals of the day and what the patient's goals are, aren't going to negatively impact the potential uh, medical interventions that are happening simultaneously. For example, we'll get into some of the conversations around proning and uh, how to reserve somebody's endurance and energy in the day um, to make sure that we're optimizing their physiological stability. So really forcing that as, as kind of a mainstay has been important. And then just thinking about uh, how we need to slow down how quickly we deliver care. I think the systems have become so just efficient and fast moving with having to push patients through the system because there's just been so many patients to take care of this year. Uh, sometimes we get going too quickly and we realize that you know, you've got you've to slow down and make sure patients are keeping up with you because there have definitely been points throughout the year where care has, has been forced to become faster moving to, to keep up with the volume that needs to be provided and sometimes slowing down to remember you're, you're meeting a new patient as well as, as well oiled as the clinical team can get over time. Making sure we're bringing each patient along with us um, has been an important lesson, definitely. And again, just no, all of the PPE, <laughs> all of the equipment, all of the time. I think in the beginning, it was a lot more laborsome to wear it all day. I think now I don't even notice, I don't even notice that we're wearing it anymore. I hadn't well, seen the space in so long. Such a treat now that we're vaccinated, <laughs> we can actually eat lunch at our own desks. And it's like, oh, that's what your face looks like. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you're you're adapting. Um, th this is so interesting to hear, kind of a your insider perspective on on working with uh, patients who have COVID nineteen, and you both have so much experience and and knowledge in critical care. I'm I'm wondering what it was like when the pandemic first unfolded, um, and you maybe didn't exactly know what to expect or what to do. How did you use your clinical reasoning and your expertise to adjust to that novelty of COVID nineteen when things first started uh, really degenerating, I guess, is a word for it. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I think with the way critical care evidence has developed over the last, uh, basically last decade, occupational therapists working in critical care settings are, are just accustomed to working with minimal evidence. Uh, well, no, minimal evidence directly coming from the occupational therapy literature. Um, you know, there, there are some landmark studies dating all the way back to like 2009 that illustrate the role uh, or the impact that occupational therapy can have uh, in a critically ill patient. So, you know, we're always used to drawing on those types of evidence bases. Um, so when the COVID pandemic hit and we didn't have, no one had evidence, to be frank, uh, no one had evidence on what to do uh, in COVID, we, you know, we turned to the best available evidence. Uh, and so we turned to things, uh, resources like the uh, AETHRF bundle released by the Society for Critical Care Medicine. Uh, we've turned to uh, evidence uh, for patients recovering from acute respiratory distress syndrome. You know, the, the knee-jerk reaction in any emergency really is sort of just a panic. But working at, a, at an academic center with very thoughtful colleagues, you know, we, we turned to the evidence that already exists. Uh, and tried to align the COVID patient population with the closest evidence base that we had. So, you know, in doing so, we wound up uh, just implementing what was already being implemented at our center. Uh, so we just implemented the a bundle, really, in 
conjunction with all of the more COVID specific medical therapies, uh, you know, like, you know, dexamethasone and tocilizumab or however you pronounce it. But there, you know, there was a fair amount of like staying informed on all of the updates that were coming weekly from infectious disease docs uh, and the CDC, of course. Absolutely. Thank you, Jamie. Is there anything you want to add to that question? Coming into this this pandemic, John and I both play leadership roles within our OT department across and wider across the hospital system. So we work regularly with the intensivist teams who run the critical care units, and we have pretty good informal and formal working relationships with them. And we were quickly invited to join kind of interprofessional work groups on how we were going to take care of COVID patients. Um, being on the West Coast, we got to see how New York was adapting quickly. And we were definitely, by the time the Los Angeles became kind of the new epicenter, um, just through you know the winter holidays, we had had time to really build a strong clinical team. So John and I trained a few junior faculty members that uh, work full-time at the hospital to create a small clinical team that so that our care was really consistent across providers and we felt supported. They felt supported. We gave um, really thorough training on how to manage some of the hemodynamic instability issues that these patients are seeing. So how therapists can think about how other providers are treating them so that we can better align our functional goals. I think we had a lot of good prep time. Um, which made it going into the kind of hour surge that we faced, it made it manageable. And then I think John coming out of neurocritical care and myself working in pulmonary um, and kind of how wide ranging COVID can present, it made come bringing, it made John and I work together for the first time. We had always been friends and do things, you know, outside of clinical care, but it forced us to collaborate on a very diverse and kind of shared interest um, of clinical populations. So I think it, um, we, we made a good team and it made our department do very well and demonstrate its value within the hospital system. We'll get back to our interview right after this quick message. You all know we really try to make research more consumable and applicable on everyday evidence. But did you know that just one minute of your time could help us to improve the show, improve the resources the American Occupational Therapy Association provides for practitioners, and improve the application of evidence to practice within our whole field. Please take our one-minute survey. It's only three questions, and you can find the link in this and every episode's description. And support the AOTA in continued efforts to improve our podcasts and to improve the translation of research to practice. Now back to the interview. That's really excellent to hear. It sounds like you were really quick to mobilize, really quick to take action, um, and also to to start finding the best evidence available to to guide your actions and your your interventions. Um, and I I think it's really interesting that you uh, were seeking to use the nearest evidence uh, related to COVID nineteen, and now you are contributing to the evidence out there uh, for occupational therapy. You're both contributors to an American Occupational Therapy Association slash American Journal of Occupational Therapy special supplement on the COVID pandemic and co-authored a critical care case application, uh, which I'd love to focus on during most of of what we have left in our interview. Could you describe the purpose of this project and tell us how these case studies can be helpful to other practitioners? Uh, So the goal of this case study specifically 
the one that Jamie and I wrote together uh, with our colleagues, uh, Carney Lewis and Kelsey Peterson, uh, the goal was to overview uh, a patient who gets admitted from an emergency room up to a, a telemetry floor and to follow their course from that point on to a, de- a medical decompensation resulting in uh, intubation and mechanical ventilation and following them out to a step-down unit once they've uh, been uh, transitioned out. And really throughout the case, we're reviewing the, and identifying the OT, like goals of care. What are What is the occupational therapist role and how are we contributing to the overall uh, condition in this patient? We're you know, looking at how to prevent uh, decompensation uh, and overwork uh, as the patient is in their sort of downward slide and still in the window to, to decompensate. We were looking at uh, activity prescriptions and basically how to give patients guidelines, how to give nurses guidelines on how to care for these patients uh, in a manner that doesn't worsen the COVID pneumonia that they're having. Overall, the, the key was just to give practitioners just enough information for them to use if they were happen to be redeployed to a COVID unit to give those uh, practitioners at least just a starting point of, okay, this is a framework of how to approach these uh, types of patients uh, with you know all, all of the requisite resources that they can go uh, and utilize on their own time. Awesome. Thank you. You mentioned that uh, you worked with two colleagues, Kelsey and Carney. Can you describe how you all worked together in developing this case application as a team? Yeah. So the four of us have really worked together throughout this year as kind of our core clinical team from the occupational therapy department. And so I think we had a lot of great clinical examples that we wanted to highlight for uh, this case report. So we sat down and kind of ran through our our favorite lists of kind of the, the patients that we felt demonstrated the most typical trajectory of, I think, important timelines within COVID infection um, when somebody needs hospitalization. And we know at this point now that there are so many variable presentations, multi-system across different areas of medical specialty. But typically, we're thinking about this as a primary or primary presenting respiratory condition that can turn into a multi-system impairment. Um, So we put our heads together and we came to one patient that we all worked with and uh, knew well and had a great occupational profile that I think that is actually, I think, what got the voting, how we decided on who we just, who we wrote about, uh, because we enjoyed their profile so much. We enjoyed them as as people and uh, working with their family. And really, we, we felt like we provided really great family-centered care, as well as patient-centered care, not just as an OT department, but as as a entire interprofessional team. And we wanted to make sure that that, that was highlighted in in what we presented to to the public and to the professions. Absolutely. That sounds great. And I, I was able to hear a, a toilet flush in the background uh, that time. Uh, Jamie and John are calling from the hospital. This interview has a lot of character and they're still in the thick of things. Um, just want to want to clarify for our listeners that no one is in a bathroom currently, but just in a hospital where sounds like that happened. Hey, hey, even the, even the U S Supreme court recorded a, uh, a toilet flushing in one of their uh, arguments that they were that, that they were doing on Zoom during the pandemic. There you go. You know, I I feel quite comfortable saying that we're on the same level as the U.S. Supreme Court. <laughs> <laughs> 
thank you for for describing this case. Uh, like, like you mentioned, John, you kind of follow the process or progression of of a patient presenting with impending respiratory failure through the ICU level of care and then through step down care. Could you go ahead and, and walk us through this case, starting with the evaluation? Sure. Uh, so we broke this case up into generally three chunks. We focused, of course, mostly on the critical care chunk, uh, but we wanted to uh, just illustrate what a patient would look like when they got to the hospital. Um, just sort of a prototypical case with COVID. Uh, so uh, our case, uh, his, our patient rather, his name is Jeffrey, um, and he presents uh, to the hospital after having several days of shortness of breath, uh, and he gets admitted to a regular hospital floor, placed on oxygen, and per hospital protocol, the occupational therapy is consulted. We wanted to identify the initial goals of an occupational therapy evaluation, and so the way we uh, implemented our protocol is the, the one of the first things occupational therapists are doing uh, are trying to figure out the onset of symptoms uh, and where, uh, in this case, Jeffrey is in his disease course. Uh, and if they're still within that like eight to 10 day window from symptom onset, those patients are still well within the, the window to decompensate and go into really severe respiratory failure. And so Jeffrey presents within this window uh, rather before he presents, I think around day six, and so the occupational therapy evaluation is figuring out, all right, what is, where is he at in terms of his functional status? His strength is fine. Uh, his endurance is limited because of shortness of breath uh, and especially with exertion. And so as a result, because of that shortness of breath and because he's still in the window to decompensate, the occupational therapist uh, gave him and gave the medical team, including nursing, uh, what we call an activity prescription. And so that is basically uh, just a sort of guideline for uh, caring for that patient in terms of their mobility and functional status. So we asked the nursing staff to, even though he had the strength to walk to the bathroom, to not walk him to the bathroom and instead use a commode so that he doesn't uh, become overworked and desaturate uh, too far um, on his two liters of nasal cannula oxygen. Limiting his time out of bed, where in most cases, uh, especially with all the early critical care rehab uh, data suggesting more movement and more upright positioning is better. In in the early cases of COVID, we were actually requesting uh, the patients stay more in bed, uh, which was goes against everything we've uh, in the last five to 10 years uh, learned and been trained. So we were asking the nurses, don't walk them to the bathroom. Don't have them sitting up in the chair three times a day, four times a day for four hours at a time because they're going to get exhausted. Instead, just have them lay in bed. And rather, and and sort of on that note, rather than just laying in bed supine, uh, the other really big component of the evaluation was education was education for Jeffrey uh, on uh, self proning. And so sometimes that's called awake proning, sometimes it's called self proning, but it's basically where the patient, instead of being laying on their back in bed, is laying on their uh, stomach, on their chest. Uh, and now that's to help with uh, sort of the ventilation and perfusion matching in the lungs, uh, basically just improves oxygenation uh, in the patient uh, by you know recruiting different areas of the lungs and driving blood to those areas as well. So any any provider, uh, whether it's a physical therapist, a physician, a nurse, can give that education. And in fact, uh, everyone was because it was the protocol. However, the occupational therapy team with Jeffrey really sort of blended the, the art and the science to occupational therapy practice uh, in that Jeffrey was a very generally compliant uh, patient. 
you know, he, he was science fearing, science adhering, uh, was going to do uh, whatever was told, but laying on your stomach, unless you're a stomach sleeper, which uh, I am not, but unless you're a stomach sleeper, laying on your stomach is not that comfortable. Um, so uh, the occupational therapy team really found ways uh, to increase Jeffrey's adherence. Uh, small tweaks, things that are uh, really, really in the grand scheme of things small, but really helped with his adherence to self-proning. So things like turning the bed so that uh, Jeffrey could still watch uh, TV while uh, in the hospital. The, the bed is down at the foot of the bed, and if he's laying prone, he was staring at the wall. So we turned the bed 90 degrees so that when he turned his head to the left, he could see the TV, you know, and instead of just having to listen to it. Or, you know, mounting his phone on the side of the hospital bed so that not only could he still reach it, but he could still interact with it and use, you know, tap, tap, tap the screen and, you know, uh, video call with family and, and text and all that stuff. Um, you know, it was something as simple as placing his phone in a plastic bag and hanging it right on the side of the bed. Um, those kinds of things uh, were what we were generally doing on the first uh, admission evaluation. Absolutely. I love the creative problem solving that that goes into that. Thank you for sharing those those examples. And you, you touched on a, a couple of things like activity recommendations, uh, positioning, uh, what does current evidence suggest are, are additional best practices to include when conducting an evaluation with a patient diagnosed with COVID-19? I think for the group of people that uh, John is referring to in that last description, it's really for the patients we're, we're focusing in on, in Jeffrey's case, on people that are experiencing acute pneumonias and acute respiratory distress syndrome secondary to their COVID viral infection. And so getting admitted to the hospital sets the precedent that you require oxygen support to maintain normal amounts of oxygen in your bloodstream to feed your vital organs. So knowing that patients are coming into the hospital to receive uh, supplemental oxygen therapy and some of the uh, medications that came out um, over the course of the year to treat uh, the viral infection, um, as well as treat potential secondary infections with antibiotics and whatnot, knowing that and in the context of that early window of the infectious disease onset, we had to expect that patients were going to continue to deteriorate from a respiratory standpoint. And so when we're saying we wanted to restrict activity or we wanted to minimize the amount of exertion that um, patients engaged in each day, whether that just be walking to the bathroom to use the toilet and wanting to minimize how much walking or how much exertional activity we offered them, was in order to prevent them from having acute decompensation. So thinking about every time they get up to sit in the chair, or every time they get up to go to the bathroom and they struggle to breathe. And if we were monitoring them, we would know that their oxygen saturations were falling to levels much lower than you'd ever see in someone presenting with an acute pneumonia. And patients re relatively not being symptomatic to the extent at which you'd expect um, we expected that patients were often getting up out of bed on their own to do things, taking off their oxygen. So we're really talking about every time that happens, a human body doesn't necessarily have the chance to fully recover. And so continuous bouts of desaturation can often cause more rapid deterioration and, and land our patients in their critical care units um, or require an, an emergency intubation or um, ventilator support. So really everything we did in the first window of time after evaluating a patient was to help them sustain basic functional independence 
allow them out of bed to use a toilet, give them very task-specific recommendations, though, on ways to make them successful in doing whatever they needed to do to meet their self-care needs, to meet their physical performance needs, but also accommodate to allow their performance to support physio- physiologic responses that other interventions across the multi- multidisciplinary team were aiming at. So how do we optimize their oxygenation? We're making them lay on their stomach for eight hours at a time to get oxygen into their bloodstream and promote gas exchange. But every time they get up to walk to the bathroom, it just totally takes away all that recovery, right? And it and it never lets their body fully get enough gas circulating. So the first window of time, we really focused on educating patients on how to protect themselves and how to prevent an emergency decompensation, as well as how do you just keep yourself feeling a as normal as possible, as independent as possible, and as calm as possible as you kind of await the inevitable unknown of what was going to happen as they approached that 10-day mark. As our patient, eventually Jeffrey, got to the threshold where he needed to transition out of the regular med surge floor to an ICU critical care unit, and as he you know, enters into more progressive respiratory failure. And actually, as, as Jeffrey enters his ICU stay within, within our case report, within 12 hours, he needs to be placed on a mechanical ventilator as his ventilatory muscles fatigue, as he's unable to really even speak, he's not able to eat. It's, we're hoping that he can hold on in a prone position with maximal oxygen support from a high-flow nasal cannula and a non-rebreather oxygen mask. So we're giving him as much concentrated oxygen in the air that he's breathing to get as much into his bloodstream. But at that point, you know, the, the, the available lung tissue for oxygenation was just not there. And he eventually fatigued requiring mechanical ventilation. And, and that's really where um, his OT services have to be put on hold because at that threshold, there was no available reserve to perform activities. It was just laying in bed on his stomach and breathing without really even the attention or uh, energy to watch TV at that point, stopped engaging with his phone because he was just so exhausted from breathing. And so at that point, he is placed on a mechanical ventilator and the nursing and respiratory therapy teams really take over in in what we call um, manual proning. And so as Jeffrey's sedated and eventually put on a paralytic medication, the teams go into his room each day and turn him uh, from his stomach to his back and then back to his stomach, trying to shoot for an 18-hour uh, goal of prone time each day to maximize uh, gas exchange in his lungs and that ventilation perfusion matching. And Jeffrey is intubated and sedated for a very long time. They eventually place a tracheostomy to a lot because they anticipate that his recovery will be so extended. And so once the tracheostomy is placed, he actually starts to improve his clinical status. And a few days after the tracheostomy is placed, the critical care team reaches out. Um, I want to say it's about 25 days he's, he's down for um, where he's not having any rehab services. And within two days of placing the tracheostomy, they're able to turn off the paralytic medication. They're able to keep him on his back as, and they, they can discontinue manual proning. And they are now able to um, start to consult real, early rehabilitation services again. So we come back in as an OT clinical team and we reevaluate uh, Jeffrey. And so this is evaluation number two within the case report. And it's a much more significant 
result in terms of his performance patterns and um, occupational engagement capacities. Um, not only is he much more critically ill still, and he remained on, on uh, medication supporting his sedation levels and his uh, blood pressure for quite a while as we began to work with him. But the second OT evaluation really represents what a patient looks like um, as they are entering into the survivorship of critical illness um, in the early phases of early mobilization and early rehabilitation. Thank you for kind of outlining that whole, the whole process and, and giving us insight into to what care can, can look like on this continuum. When you are conducting that, that second evaluation now, what are important considerations related to, to Jeffrey's performance pattern and, and body functions that you're looking for? Um, or, or what are you really paying the most attention to in your reevaluation? So the first thing is, is he awake enough to purposefully engage? And this can be really tricky because it's not going to be just general command following. Um, oftentimes, you have to coordinate with many different professionals to get the right um, level of continuous sedation medications that are being infused into his body turned down to achieve a, an arousal level of, you know, you don't want him over, you don't want him too awake. You want him to maintain comfort and synchrony with the ventilator that's helping him to breathe. You don't want him to become too restless or agitated, but you also don't want him so drowsy that, you know, he's not able to open his eyes and be aware of his surroundings and start to build an awareness and an orientation for what's what's going on. As you achieve that optimal arousal, uh, we score it on the Richmond um, Agitation and Sedation Scale or a RAS score, and you're looking for you know a score of negative one to positive one generally. And once somebody's able to wake up, you're going to start to figure out, okay, you know, after you've got them oriented, how can you get their body upright? And so really the first thing is upright tolerance, um, and that's in somebody that hasn't been upright, who's been bedbound for an extended period of time and is having cardiovascular compromise, so their blood pressure is already low. How does their body respond when gravity is now pulling blood down to their feet? Is Is their heart able to beat? Is their vascular system able to vasoconstrict to help maintain circulation and maintain a basic blood pressure, right? Um, so you're really looking at activity from very um, component-based, um, very much a medical model because you're working within the context of very intricate medical control over body functions and body systems in a person that has very, very severely impaired body function and body systems. So, you know, the objective measurements you're looking at in the beginning are, you know, what does turning down the sedation do to his heart rate and his blood pressure? As that stabilizes relatively, are you able to turn the bed into a chair? So we have really wonderful beds and equipment in the ICUs. So can I sit him up in a bed and slowly start to drop the feet of the bed down to gravity into a cardiac chair position? And does, as although that may make his arousal much better, right? Um, he's able to see his environment a bit more and stop staring at the ceiling. Um, is, does his blood pressure maintain at a, at a level that is acceptable? for his other vital organ function, right? Um, and to maintain uh, maintain his arousal. Um, and that's all discussed with the critical care team. And you've got, you know, nursing at your at the bedside usually or respiratory therapy there to support ventilator adjustments to support his um, comfort with ventilation. And then from there, you start to look at, okay, how weak are these muscles? Um, if somebody's been down multiple days, multiple weeks at a time, and they've been on paralytic medications, muscle contraction has been so minimal 
for so long, you're really starting from, um, is this person to move and contract their muscles in, in anti-gravity positions, helping just, you know, start to build an awareness of how to contract your muscles again. Um, very much just gross motor movements. I mean, t- checking to see, you know, what sort of potential soft tissue restrictions may have developed. Um, our nursing teams are pretty wonderful at patient um, turning and positioning and making sure that they bring us in uh, for any sort of like early contracture signs or symptoms. So that generally is taken care of by nursing colleagues. But in the very beginning, it is really just, can you wake up? Can you start to sit up in a supported position? And can you start to minimally move and engage and interact with your surroundings in a very component-driven way? The outcome measure looking is you're looking at is their physiologic stability to do that. And from there, you can kind of pick up the process and make uh, sitting a little bit more challenging, you can make engagement a little bit more challenging, but you're really looking at the bare bones of what it takes to function as a human being. Yeah, that you're gathering all this information um, during the, the evaluation. What did Jeffrey look like? How was his arousal, his activity, his vital sign responses and, and muscle strength? And how did um, this information you, you gathered and observed kind of guide your intervention with him? So very early on uh, in his ICU course, uh, so again, this is sort of the second evaluation component in the case study. Jeffrey was, was very, very weak. We use the Medical Research Council SUM score, uh, upper and lower extremity strength, as a, as a way of quantifying strength. And I early on in his ICU evaluation, Jeffrey is very weak on the MRC SUM score, um, something in the range of like 9 or 10 out of 60. And so that profound degree of weakness that Jeff, uh, Jamie already talked about really drives a lot of the uh, interventions that we uh, choose to do. So initially, it's some degree of strengthening, but really also tolerance to that upright position. So his his ability to tolerate even just cardiac chair position uh, initially in the ICU was limited to about four to five minutes uh, before his blood pressure would tank and his heart rate would go above uh, a comfortable parameter that the intensivists, uh, in conjunction with us, would set. His uh, just overall physiologic reserve, whether it's cardiac uh, cardiac reserve or or respiratory reserve, was so minimal that we had to break up the intervention chunks into really short sessions. Um, now, you know, sometimes f- f- just to get that five minutes of upright activity, whether he's uh, trying to FaceTime his family or just five minutes upright, just trying to breathe. Um, sometimes we're actually in there for you know a half hour or more just preparing all the lines and preparing, uh, preparing the environment to facilitate success. But early on, he looked, uh, you know, really weak, very sedated because he was on sedative medications and had no, absolutely no tolerance, you know, as we worked. And delirious. Yeah. Oh yes. <laughs> and he had uh, uh, sort of fluctuating bouts of uh, delirium, which, uh, you know, delirium is the, is the D in the Aetherep bundle. Um, so, you know, managing his delirium, uh, trying to normalize his sleep-wake cycles, tr- you know, occupational therapy uh, clinicians were intricately involved in the spontaneous awakening trials and spontaneous breathing trials to, to increase the success of those uh, to, in an effort to reduce the delirium. 
uh, Jeffrey, over time, get, was getting stronger and able to participate in, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes of, of in-bed activity, whether it's cardiac chair uh, on FaceTime or, or beginning to mobilize to the edge of the bed. Overall, uh, occupational therapists are, are, are just, we're just good at waking people up, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, waking people up um, from sedation or sort of waking people up from a bout of delirium. Being able to do that with an occupational therapist uh, or, you know, an occupational therapy practitioner uh, at the bedside usually improves the success just because we're, you know, we are those holistic practitioners. Uh, we were able to bring that human touch uh, to the bedside. Absolutely. Uh, Jamie, is there anything you wanted to add there? I think we like to wake people up in a way that has more purpose than just waking them up just to make sure they can still wake up, which is oftentimes the intention in a critical care unit. Uh, they do a spontaneous awakening trial. They want to wake you up just long enough to prove that you are able to wake up and check your mental status. And then they'll resedate you and move on to the next task, uh, where when we come in the room, we are able to um, generally achieve an arousal level, and then what are we going to do with it, right? We want to use that arousal to promote engagement, to get someone doing something that's going to bring intermittent awareness to their body, to their environment, to the situation at large, and to be able to start to process and perform some just basic components of motor skills, um, self-care engagement. It brings a whole new level of appreciation to engaging and facilitating engagement in basic components of self-care, bringing a washcloth to your face, bringing your own hand to your nose to feel what that tube is going in there, not to making sure you don't pull on it, but also what is that thing touching my nose? I have no idea what it is. Um, the noxious stimuli that, that patients experience in an ICU bed, whether it be you know partially sedated and nurses are turning your body to uh, lines and tubes that are taped down to your neck and you can't figure out why you can't turn your neck one direction because there's tape constantly pulling it. You know, the little hairs on your neck telling you not to turn your head. Um, you're trying to make sense of all of these noxious stimuli coming in, bed moving up and down, you know, the lights bright over your eye, uh, bright over the bed um, during procedures, but the curtains never really being opened purposefully. I think it is a very disorganizing place, particularly for someone who is sedated and weak and unable to interact with their environment or communicate. Um, so I think that slowing things down when we go in there while people are slowly emerging from the sedation and helping them organize themselves, I really believe that um, we can help in just small interventions and small intentions and in what you want to achieve as someone wakes up and offer them moments of self-care and reorientation is, is a different type of perspective that we bring. We're thinking beyond just getting through the next 12 hours, but we're really thinking about the immediate and the long-term outcomes of survivorship and what small moments along the journey of, you know, a critical care course, which is a lot of up and down. It's, you know, sometimes a few steps forward and then 10 steps back and then a few more steps forward. And so every day really does feel like a new kind of reassessment, an informal reevaluation, because things change moment to moment. And you really can't say that what happened yesterday and, you know, you want to build on what you accomplished the day before, but it's never, it's never guaranteed. Um, you're always reassessing to see where somebody is at in, in the next kind of shift, knowing that in the long run, achieving a successful day of waking up and, and understanding what's going on will ultimately hopefully help their, their long-term outcomes and prevent, you know, long-term morbidity for those who survive. 
Absolutely. It sounds like a very uh, fluctuating in environment um, for U.S. therapists and also for patients there. Um, but I think this is really helpful in, in identifying certain factors and, and things that practitioners should consider when providing intervention. How would you two say that your interventions have evolved since the beginning of the pandemic? Mm, that's a good question. I know it has. I know it. So I think what's for me, at least, I, I think I've been working in, in pulmonary care and I've, I've loved working in pulmonary care for a long time now. And I love the being able to like my one of my favorite things to do for a long time now is being able to craft sort of the perfect balance between how somebody executes their day to day life and balancing the need for reliance on supplemental oxygen and giving somebody you know, just enough oxygen so that their saturations are in a goal range, but that they're also able to take care of themselves and be independent. And it's really a balance of, you know, exertion and respiratory reserve and how much somebody has to work to do something and giving them a little bit more support. And I think it's been, you know, the world of, or at least the occupational therapy world is now thinking about oxygen therapy and about acute and chronic pulmonary diseases. So I just feel like I got a whole lot more people on my team and people that want to nerd out on these types of things with me and have these types of conversations about what is the safe way to wean somebody's oxygen? How do you um, help someone who's never been sick before understand energy conservation and how important prioritizing where you put your energy is, where you put your energy each day? Um, so I think it's been fun to have colleagues who otherwise were working in, with other populations kind of come over to my team and and learn to appreciate the perfectly crafted, you know, activity prescription for somebody going home with, you know, relatively a lot of supplemental oxygen who can't necessarily live unless, you know, they're they're tethered by a nasal cannula. But then thinking about that nasal cannula not as a leash, but kind of as a tool to allow you to go home. It allows you to be able to get up and do things. Um and it, it enables participation um, within the home and outside the home when it's done well. So I've been really lucky to have you know a team that's willing to to learn with me and from me and appreciate the the art of supplemental oxygen is my my favorite thing to do. But um, I don't know if John feels the same way. <laughs> Maybe he's sick of it by now. <laughs> so, thank you jamie but before we hear from john on, on how interventions have evolved since the beginning of the pandemic for you i just want to ask a follow-up for practitioners who maybe want to learn more about supplemental oxygen um, or these energy conservation techniques that you mentioned how could they do so do you have any resources that you would recommend um, or a actions that they could take to to be more involved and include more of that in in their intervention I think it was one of those things that I, I only learned through asking a lot of questions to a lot of people um, and then kind of merged their answers and came up with kind of the, what I thought was the best answer and then verified that with with really the, the experts in managing acute and chronic lung diseases. So first things first, become friends with respiratory therapists in your, in your work environment, in your care facilities. Um, and really ask them how they make the decisions they make and find a few good ones that really know what they're doing and um, are willing to share their knowledge with you and partner with them, collaborate with them and ask them, you know, how you can, how they can help um, you be successful and your patient be successful as you want to get them up out of bed. Um, grading activities is something we're really good at, but we can also think about elements of grading activities with 
great um, increasing or decreasing the amount of oxygen we provide someone or the amount of uh, blood pressure medication that's being you know run through their IVs. So the medical therapies and the medical interventions that patients are receiving in critical care units are just other elements of how you can grade an activity um, based on how quickly you get somebody up or how hard you're going to work them at the edge of the bed versus how much postural support you opt to give them may decrease their work of breathing. So it's very much um, understanding the pathophysiology of what's happening in acute and chronic lung conditions and understanding um, how activity is going to impact oxygenation and potentially, you know, gas exchange overall in the body. And then how can you use activity to support better physiologic functioning? Because ultimately, people tend to breathe better when you get them up and help them move. But you've got to make sure that you're providing them enough concentration of oxygen as you allow them to do that. Um, So I think partnering with respiratory therapists, partnering with pulmonary physicians, partnering with Um, other therapists, speech therapists, physical therapists that are comfortable working with these populations, um, because really a multidisciplinary rehabilitation approach um, to pulmonary rehabilitation is is critical. Yeah, I think just to add to that, healthcare has always been a team effort. Uh, COVID was no different and sort of just forced everyone to work better as a team. You know, I just have to agree with you know, making friends with a lot of people. Uh, but one, one, one strong friend, one very meaningful friend that uh, we made early on in the, in the pandemic uh, was we, you know, we found several, some of, several of them were our pre-existing physician champions, but some were new. Uh, and so we reached out and found physician champions, um, people who really strongly, ardently believed in the value of uh, early occupational therapy and early rehab despite, uh, you know, the COVID pandemic and, and all of the PPE involved, fi- making, making friends with those uh, physicians and having them on your side when you might have some other staff uh, being pushing against uh, what you want to do with a patient, saying that the patient's not ready or they're too sick or whatever the case may be, having that physician on your side uh, as a champion for early mobility and early engagement in occupation can really go a long way um, because, you know, as, as anyone who works in healthcare knows, uh, you know, there's a lot of red tape and a lot of just unit specific practices or facility specific practices that you have to get past. And just having a, having a strong champion on your side can, can, can make everything go just a bit smoother. Absolutely. Thank you both for those recommendations. Um, I think uh, we can go ahead and get, and get back to our, our friend Jeffrey here. How did he respond to intervention and really what did the rest of his journey uh, look like? So uh, Jeffrey responded really well uh, overall to the interventions that we provided. In, in the early days when he was being admitted, uh, we did give him the educational self-proning and, uh, and all of that. He still wound up, uh, despite self-proning and adhering to that, he still wound up getting intubated. Uh, we didn't really take that as a failure per se, because that was just the natural course of the disease. Once he was reevaluated in ICU after being down for 20 plus days, uh, he was rather weak, um, and he responded really well to the to the um, to occupational therapy being involved in the awakening trials and the breathing trials, getting him more upright oriented. He, in fact, um, became oriented very quickly despite having intermittent bouts of confusion and delirium. Uh, he would sometimes be waving from within the room to us, uh, waving us in saying like, I want more therapy. Um, 
And throughout his ICU course, he progressed to being from being able to only do about five minutes of cardiac chair position to getting out of bed every day uh, with the therapy team for several hours a day. The therapist uh, was giving quite a bit of assistance to transfer uh, Jeffrey, but he was still able to do it. Uh, and that's sort of you know the point. The point was he was able to tolerate not only being just upright in cardiac chair position, but beginning to get out of bed, engage in really the basic self-care tasks, uh, and really reconnecting with his family because he did spend so much time disconnected from, uh, well, the world. So as soon as we could, as soon as he had the tolerance, uh, we got him re-engaged with his family, talking to them on FaceTime, talking to them uh, on his uh, uh, various iPhone and technical, or he has laptop with him. Uh, and he would just sit in his IC room, IC room uh, you know, communicating with them on, uh, on the on the computer because he had a trig and he had some trouble speaking as he progressed to using a speaking valve. Then he was actually able to vocalize things. By the time he transitioned out to the step down unit, he was spending several hours a day out of bed, needing decreasing amounts of assistance to the point where uh, nursing was able to transfer him without the use of a mechanical lift. They, they were uh, for a period of time using uh, like a stand assist device uh, to help just with that terminal hip extension at the end that um, so many of the critically ill patients uh, experience, including Jeffrey. And uh, over the, his, the course of his uh, step-down visit, he uh, wound up just continuing to get stronger, weaning from his oxygen even further uh, down to n- uh, not quite room air, but um, weaning quite a bit down from being full support on the ventilator in the ICU. Uh, eventually got strong enough to be ambulatory uh, with a walker with men assist uh, and began not having those excessive desaturations uh, and or, or, or excessive heart rate responses or anything like that. So overall, you know, Jeffrey responded very well uh, and, and got a lot stronger. So it took us about 61 days, 60, 62 days, something around there, um, for his total hospital length of stay with us. He was actually a very successful case and a really memorable case for our team because we worked really hard to build his tolerance to meet criteria to discharge to not just post-acute rehabilitation, but specifically to an inpatient rehab unit, which put him on the fast track to get home as soon as possible to his family, as opposed to needing you know, an LTAC level of care, which was when we saw Jeffrey for a reevaluation in the ICU, that was... That was where he was headed, was to go to an LTAC to continue a very slow recovery, a slow ventilator wean. Um, they had placed the tracheostomy, you know, it was, it, that could take, that could take months and months with lower intensity of rehabilitation and with the volume of patient admissions ad- admitted to long-term acute care hospitals right now, um, there was no way he was going to get the, the intensity of services that he was able to tolerate. So we we worked really hard with him in the last few weeks, um, whereas, you know, our sessions were, you know, maybe not more limited in terms of their duration earlier in his ICU stay because of his impaired activity tolerance. Um, we were able to extend the length of his sessions in the final few weeks of his hospital admission to where we were able to get him to an um, inpatient rehab unit and get him home to his family as soon as possible. So a testament to his hard work and his motivation, his willingness to trust us. Uh, when he couldn't control his body and we were saying, yeah, let me just try and stand you up. Come on. Come on. We can't, we got this. Um, trust me to, uh, you know, pushing himself through, through some, you know, to feel breathless is, is a terrible feeling and to know getting up is going to create that breathlessness, um, causes that sort of anticipation of anxiety that 
a lot of patients are, are can find paralyzing. And so knowing how to coach somebody through that and educate them about what it feels like and what you know, how you know how bad it feels. Um, you acknowledge how hard it's going to be, but that there will be a day where breathing becomes easier and that they won't even think about having to do, you know, the things that they're having to do in the beginning when, when so weak and deconditioned. It's a nice process to help people breathe easier again, which isn't always an option um, when you're dealing with chronic progressive conditions, particularly lung diseases. So it's been, it's been one of my favorite things of the past year is helping people come off of oxygen, whether that takes a few weeks or it takes six months. It's been a fun thing to do. Absolutely. And Jeffrey sounds extremely resilient and hardworking. Um, what additional recommendations would you two give to practitioners to help them uh, achieve the best possible discharge setting and, and shorter lengths of stay um, for patients from the same population? I think that can be so variable depending on what what kind of a care environment you're working on and what the practices are of, of your health system. Um, insurance, as much as we like to think that care is provided based on solely on what patients need, insurance and payers are always going to influence what options are available to your, to your patients. Um, and so I think, you know, it was, we were able to advocate to, you know, really send out referrals to all of our the local inpatient rehab units um, from our health system, not just to, you know, the ones we typically refer to, to make sure that Jeffrey um, had the best chances of getting accepted um, because we knew he could tolerate it. And we knew we had gotten him to a place where a realistic transition to home um, could happen in two or three weeks. We had, we had worked hard enough up front. And I think that's because he got such you know, like individualized, tailored durations of intervention during his critical care stay. We had, you know, John and I could go together on days that we wanted to try the next level of, of intervention that would particularly be hard for him and potentially introduce really challenging line management. You know, one of us could could manage some some pretty invasive lines that we didn't feel like could happen if it was just us with our nursing colleagues. Um, so being creative in how you apply early rehab interventions can really kind of accumulate and and lead to these faster trajectories in the long-term recovery course for these patients. So, you know, advocating with, with interdisciplinary providers, again, it comes back to knowing your case managers and partnering with them and showing them how hard the team has worked to get a patient to where they, they present at and how they can then contribute to the team and in helping advocate for the patient as they send out referrals. And then sometimes you realize a lower level of care is just going to fit best. And that, you know, you, as much as we want to control um, the, the future trajectories of our patients and we put a lot of early initial investment, there are so many things out of our con control. Um, the timeline of this infection is, is keeping people down for weeks and months. That is a relatively new concept for a lot of healthcare facilities right now across the country um, that are not, you know, sort of tertiary care centers. A lot of times patients are, are in a medical status where clinicians are not comfortable to mobilize. And that's, that's something that takes time and practice and not every therapist is going to feel comfortable working, you know, with as fragile medical, medically complex patients. And, and you do what you can to, you know, respect the risks associated with OT interventions, as well as, you know, support the functional capacities of your patients. So this takes, this takes practice. 
and um, we were we were really proud of of Jeffrey and his outcomes. But that's not to say that that we're always that successful. There are you know, but doesn't mean you got to try some. You know, you got to try. You got to be okay being wrong. You know, you can shoot for inpatient rehab, and sometimes you just you just don't make it, and that's that's okay. It's the the effort that you put in initially that that makes it rewarding when it works out. Yeah. Uh, just another uh, thought uh, is, you know, we learned early on, and, you know, this is key to any aspect of healthcare, but really, really open and frequent communication. Uh, Jamie mentioned the case manager, and that's, uh, I can't um, emphasize that more, but also the primary physician. Uh, once Jeffrey left the uh, ICU, he transitioned to a medicine team. Uh, and we learned early on that just having very open lines of communication uh, with the attending on staff uh, or on service at the moment uh, really helped uh, with really management of all of these cases and, and notably with Jeffrey's. Oftentimes, rehabs may deny uh, uh, you know, an inpatient stay because they, they think the patient is too sick uh, or, or something like that, or they don't think the patient has the tolerance for it. Uh, and so by having those really open lines of communication with the primary team, as therapists, we can give daily updates to the physician, really brief ones, right? Because of course we're writing our notes, uh, but uh, sadly, you know, uh, our notes don't always get read in, in detail. So giving physicians, giving the primary team a really a heads up on, hey, today we did this, today we did this, uh, we're progressing in this way, uh, really helps the physician when they're called upon to do an MD to MD uh, handoff uh, from the um, hospital side to the rehab side. And sometimes that's really all it takes is doing that MD to MD handoff to the physiatrist to assure the physiatrist, yes, this person really does indeed uh, have the tolerance and does in fact have the need. We learned early on that that really, really helps with uh, these types of complex care transitions. Absolutely. Thank you both. Um, we're going to encourage our listeners to look for this case study and, and other case applications um, in that AOTA special supplement on the COVID pandemic in the American Journal of Occupational Therapy. Two last questions for, for you. Um, are there any other resources that you would recommend to practitioners who want to learn more about working with patients who have COVID-19? Uh, well, uh, I guess this, is, this will be a sort of sh uh, a shameless plug. Uh, but Jamie and I, along with two other colleagues, did host uh, a webinar through AOTA uh, in July, August, August of 2020, uh, where we outlined um, several of these strategies as well. Everything in the era of COVID uh, is evolving very quickly, but a lot of it still applies. Um, in terms of a lot of the early uh, critical care rehab uh, evidence, there, there's a really wonderful website called improvelto.com. Or, or, or improve LTO, long-term long -term outcomes. Uh, it's a resource compiled by uh, in, uh, critical care rehab uh, experts from Johns Hopkins and around the country. Um, it has a lot of the um, evidence for uh, early uh, uh, rehabilitation. Um, and of course, there's um, journal, uh, yeah, articles, journal articles coming out every day, both uh, in HJOD. Uh, and in OT practice. I think also, you know, thinking about rehabilitation as a multidisciplinary specialty, right? So um, it never hurts to read what your colleagues are writing just to see what lessons they're putting words to. Um, so looking at some of the physical therapy journals, looking at some of the speech therapy journals, looking at, you know, never looking at some of the critical care medicine journals just to, to see what they're publishing in terms of delirium outcomes, uh, critical illness, myopathy outcomes, how they are thinking about 
the concept of early mobilization and delirium prevention, which are kind of our our core intervention areas um, with critically ill populations, whether they have COVID-19 or other types of organ dis- body function, body dysfunction, um, and thinking about how we can translate their findings or their outcomes to what we do and how we can contribute to the things that they're, they're writing about in distinct ways. Well, thank you both for sharing your expertise, your knowledge, and also for generating um, additional resources that practitioners can consult um, and, and find evidence and support on. It's time for the Golden Nugget segment. This is our last question uh, to end the interview. What is something that you have learned during this pandemic that you would like all practitioners to know? You know, patients and families uh, both really just appreciate being involved. Um, you know, it, that's why in the A3F bundle, the F really does stand for family involvement. Um, you know, as occupational therapy practitioners, you know, we, we bring our holistic perspective uh, and sort of our inclusive nature uh, to the bedside. And in any care setting, whether it's a hospital, a, a nursing home, uh, a rehab facility, w- whatever it is, it's still a rather sterile environment. Um, and having the occupational therapy practitioner there at the bedside, um, especially when visitation is limited, to help facilitate communication and, and interaction and just participation, it, that's really, really meaningful. Um, to, to the patients and families. How about you, Jamie? As I've, I've worked in critical care over the past, you know, seven years or so, I think realizing that your ability to look at engagement and in a person's interaction, even when they really have limited ability to perform basic movements and even stay awake on their own, don't underestimate the power of, you know, a, a somebody's favorite song like don't underestimate the power of opening up the blinds so somebody can see the blue sky for you know a few moments a day um don't underestimate the power of playing and how important it is to still be able to play and laugh and find moments of of joy despite being really sick and hurting and not really knowing where you are or what's going on around you and the ventilators that make noise and the beeping alarms um, don't underestimate the the power of bringing the perspective of kind of occupational science and occupational engagement to these um, very strict and rigid medical models of care delivery. I think that's what makes doing our job so special in in these places is that we're we're very unique. We're very distinct. Although John and I both speak the the language of a medical model of care. And can very much hold our own in, in you know, physician-driven conversations regarding physiology and, and pathophysiology of, of COVID or any other disease. We are very much constantly thinking about how to get somebody to feel more like themselves and and play and engage engage with their surroundings um, in the ways that they want to. So. Although you get into your specialty niches and practice, and it's very easy to feel like you're far away from the foundations, um, the foundations are what guide what we do every day. It's it's why we justify what going in the room and why we say it needs to be us and not another provider, because we, we know what we do is distinct. And our patients and those the families and our patients who survive are, are giving us that feedback. And it's the best when you run into somebody after they've left the COVID ICU for a post-acute care facility, the favorite moments of the year have been 
reuniting with them as they come back to the hospital for follow-up appointments and, and realizing that somebody survived and somebody made it and somebody remembers, you know, the silly things that we did in the ICU through the moments of delirium and sedation. So um, those are the things that stick with people. It brings emotional salience and um, people remember the moments of really being scared, really being happy and really being, you know, celebrated for who they are. So. I love that. Thank you so much for those nuggets, um, for your time in this interview and, and for everything that, that you two do. You seriously just rock. I don't know how else to put it, um, but thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. No, absolutely. Thanks for listening to Everyday Evidence. Tune in next time for more evidence-based practice insights and applications. Thank you.